This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, as we were talking about in the break, uh, one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Day, it's a scoop. Uh, Saleha Mosin, Jennifer Jacobs, and Nick Wadhams writing about the decision, the tweet, the controversy, (laughs) as it were. A lot of this got swallowed up in all the Mueller drama over the weekend, but it involves North Korea and sanctions and... Maybe some things that were or were not happening. Let's make sense of it because Saleha is here with us on the phone from our Washington bureau. Saleha, great story. Help us understand what went on late last week. All right, we're going to take it in chronological order because it is not simple. Uh, basically, what happened was on Thursday, the Treasury Department announced sanctions on two Chinese shipping companies uh, for helping North Korea evade U.S. sanctions. On Friday, uh, around lunchtime, the president tweeted that he is reversing sanctions that were imposed that very day. Uh, There were no sanctions imposed on North Korea on Friday, and so there was a lot of confusion. We asked uh, the White House, Treasury, and State uh, what was going on, and there was hours of silence, basically. And then early evening on Friday, um, when the rest of the team was dealing with the Mueller report, uh, officials called and said that, oh, the Thursday sanctions will remain in place. The president was referring to additional sanctions that we were considering, but did not put out. Uh, So there was tons of confusion. Everyone was thinking, is the president signaling sanctions, which is something you're not supposed to do because you don't want people to start moving their assets around. It turns out the spin that we got late on Friday was inaccurate. It was misleading. He did want to reverse the sanctions that were imposed on Thursday. They came out without his approval, and he wanted to go and undo that. And why? What's your sense of why he wanted to undo them? Because what people have pointed to is this idea that he has this relationship um, with Kim Jong-un, that he has been the leader of uh, North Korea, excuse me, that he has been developing, and that he essentially didn't agree with this policy. I, I would love to know why. I think uh, he. Ha- so what we do know is that Trump had not signed off on the Thursday sanctions, but he had given the Treasury Department some discretion to decide what sanctions the department saw fit to apply. Uh, we don't know why. Uh, all we've been told by spokesmen uh, from the White House is that Trump has a very good relationship with the North Korean leader. That is literally the only response that we get when we ask why. All right. So I'm going to be the conspiracy theorist. I mean, is there any thinking that? The president, ahead of expected release of the Mueller report, was trying to kind of put some confusion out there in the marketplace that hopefully in terms of the news media that they were distracted and trying to cover both of these because this is pretty serious when it comes to North Korea and sanctions. Absolutely. I mean, the whole financial system has to understand who uh, the U.S. is okay for them to trade with and who they are not allowed to trade with. And um, I don't know. You know, it's really hard to say whether this was some sort of a, 
you know, distraction. Um, you I know, said I was playing conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, I have but, no but, idea. But I do wonder about then internally how things are happening, right? Because there are protocols in terms of, especially when it comes to sanctions, you want to be sending clear messages, um, especially when it's penalties to entities, individuals, or countries specifically. You certainly want as a country for it to be very clear. And I do wonder, you know, what's the oversight, the procedure or lack thereof that's happening currently in the White House? I mean, one thing we've reported on as a theme over the last two plus years is that the policymaking pro- process of traditional administrations just doesn't exist here. Um, when the president is going to be the last and f- give the last and final word on everything, that process can break down. And, you know, you also have divisions within the administration on any number of issues, China, Iran, oil waivers, whether we should or should not say sanction X country. So when that happens, plus you have a president who has a penchant for um, um, doing foreign policy signals via Twitter. Right. Uh, a broken down policy process is what we're seeing. Well, and one thing that's, I think, important to remember here, Saleha, and, and you and the team have been great about keeping us up to date on this, is that this is a key, maybe more so than in previous administrations, really a key piece of the puzzle for the Treasury Department, this imposition and ultimately kind of oversight of sanctions, right? It's not something that people would necessarily assume, but this is a big part of Steve Mnuchin's portfolio. Absolutely. I mean, the pace in which the Trump administration has imposed and implemented sanctions has doubled. I mean, they were on the rise anyway after 9-11, and particularly since 2015. But under the president's, this president's administration, it has really shot up. It is the foreign policy tool of choice, economic aggression. It is seen as sort of the middle ground between uh, diplomacy and when you try to use words to negotiate and actual full-blown military action. So this middle ground is really being used a lot by this administration. And so it's a it's a key tool for foreign policy, but it's not being used in a very smooth process. Saleha Mosin, she is U.S. Treasury reporter. Her scoop on the North Korean sanctions of last week and the back and forth between the president and the Treasury Department. It's one of the most read on the terminal. And I have to say, it's a reminder, yeah. especially post Mueller report, that trade sanctions all around the world, especially between the U.S. and China, between other nations, really is front and center. Well, and we know for the North Korean leader, this is also front and center because he would love to get some sanctions relief and move forward. So uh, certainly a situation still yet to be resolved. All right. Well, of great interest to anyone who is following the bond market, uh, muni bonds for sure. Robert Wimmel is portfolio manager for BMO Intermediate Tax-Free Fund, overseeing, BMO does, $235 billion. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. So muni bonds, Robert, they're in Chicago. They are very much uh, top of mind. Chicago, Illinois, uh, a big market for this. What is front of mind for you? Yeah, it's uh, actually it's been a great year for municipal bonds in general. Uh, the uh, Bloomberg Barclays 1 to 15 year index returning 2.28% uh, year to date. So it's been a great start to the year. Uh, yeah, um, finding bonds has actually been a bit of a problem for a lot of people in my position. Uh, we've had about $20 billion in inflows year-to-date into municipal funds and ETFs, and it may not sound like that much compared to other 
uh, sectors. Uh, but uh, for munis, that's a big number. It's actually uh, the largest number we've seen for this time of year, going back to 1992 when the record started. So, And what uh, accounts for all those inflows? I think, uh, you know, obviously we have a, a very uh, stable um, environment here for municipal bonds as far as uh, yields go. Uh, they, I shouldn't say stable. They've been they've been rallying right. quite significantly over the past few days, but uh, and they're down about thirty basis points across the municipal yield curve year to date. But um, I, investors, you know, it, this is one of the last uh, uh, legitimate tax breaks you can find in the U.S. And I think as they're doing their taxes and they're looking at their tax situation and they're bumping up against the SALT uh, limitations that were put in place back in uh, 2018, um, this is this is the place to be for a lot of investors. Uh, you know, individual income tax rates did not drop that much. So it's still a good value versus uh, corporate bonds and treasuries. You know, our Suzanne Woolley of Bloomberg News, she in fact did a story back in uh, February last month, and she said your New York taxes are too high. Well, muni bonds may offer an answer. I am interested, too, though, as you say, a lot more money is going into them. What about issuance, right? Because supply demand um, plays into this. What kind of issuance yeah. are we seeing? Issuance is about typical for, uh, uh, you know, the historical issuance we've seen over the past decade or so. But it is down from last year. You know, last year, in 2018, we had that um, – oh, well, it's, it's, it's up a bit from 2018. We had that drop in issuance in 2018 because we had a lot of issues pulled into 2017 before the tax uh, um, tax law came into play. Right. Uh, so it's up a bit, but it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it feels a little weaker than some of the past years we've had. So it, it's been difficult to find, especially with all those inflows, it has been difficult to find uh, paper. We, um, you know, we'll go in on a deal. We'll get, definitely we'll get scaled back on the number of bonds we receive versus what we put in for. You're going to see a lot of bumps, uh, that is price increases, yield drops, on the uh, paper that's coming to market in the primary market. So it's yeah. a great time for issuers. It's a great time for, you know, you're saving taxpayer money when you're issuing at these lower yields. And I just want to I just want to throw yeah. out there, Suzanne, who did this reporting, and again, it was last month, but she said the after-tax returns for high net worth investors would be about 3%, you know, roughly in an, in an environment where inflation is kind of 1.9% over the long term. So, you know, very little risk and you get a real return, uh, a real return rate of more than 1%. So it's something to think about. I'm curious, your fund, by the way, the BMO Intermediate Tax-Free Fund, beating most of its peers over the past five years uh, in the 77th percentile, at least according to Bloomberg data. So so what are the issues that you're finding that you uh, think are the right investment for this environment right now? Uh, right now, it's, uh, you know, spreads have tightened up a bit. Um, mm since we saw some outflows out of the high-yield funds, municipal high-yield funds, uh, last fall, uh, things have tightened up again with all this demand uh, for municipal bonds. So uh, you have to be careful in picking uh, your bonds out there right now. But you have a uh, lot in Chicago and yeah. Illinois. Is that where you're finding opportunities? We, yeah, you know, we do still find opportunity there. Um, you know, we see Illinois GO bonds, which 
uh, we rate a couple notches higher than the rating agencies, you can get it about 1.7 percentage points, 170 basis points more than uh, AAA rated scale. So we yeah. do like Illinois. Uh, we we have a good outlook for it, and we live right here. So I think we know. There you go. Know. Right there yeah. in your backyard. All right. <laughs> Robert Wimmel is portfolio manager at BMO Intermediate Tax-Free Fund, about $235 billion under management. He joined us on the phone from Chicago, Carol. This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm all right song. So, <laughs> nothing like, boy, he's dancing in the newsroom. Dancing in the studio, I should say. It's so, a fishbowl studio. I know. On. Everybody's Been watching. Show for the people. So nothing like an activist fight, uh, certainly to get a stock-moving WOA, as I like to say. Uh, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond. It's like a Beyond. cage match. It's not just a fight. <laughs> it's just crazy. Take him to the mat. Uh, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond, they're up more than 20%. I got to take a look at uh, the latest trade. They were up more than 25% a little bit earlier today. I think up as much as 30% in today's session. Three activist funds getting together saying it's time to replace the company's entire 12-person board. You're out. Seema Shah is senior <laughs> consumer analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I mean, that's pretty aggressive. It is pretty aggressive, but if you look at the tenure of the management team and the board, it, they've all been there for quite a long time. And even as recently as a few months ago when they made changes in the management team, they're really just switching people around. So it wasn't anything fresh or new. So I think that it, given the way that retail is going towards younger consumers and millennials, it, it makes sense to me to want to bring in some new blood, maybe some fresh ideas, because clearly what they're doing is not working. Right. And this stock was down 48% last year, 46% the year before, mm-hmm. 16% before that, 36% before mm-hmm. that. It's just been on a downward spiral. Yes. But sales and margins have continued to decline essentially since maybe 2012, 2013. Retail was very slow to figure out that the internet is going to be something they really need to invest in. <laughs> Their stores are cluttered. They're not relevant. There's too much going on and you have to be much more nimble and quick in this retail environment than they are and you get stuck right you start in that store and then you're like oh my god i gotta walk through pillows and i gotta walk through sheets and then i gotta walk through like no it's no this drives me personally crazy. and there's so many initiatives but none have come to completion because we're not seeing the results so i think this is a good first step however given where bed bath is in the competitive landscape i don't know if it's too little too late it's interesting though i mean i take your point About and some would say stores. that's effective. It works for IKEA, but well, well or and, maybe I don't know. But there's also this element. You know, you you think about Marshalls, which mm-hmm. has sort of positioned itself as like, hey, what are you going to discover this time when you go to Marshalls, Bed Bath and Beyond? It seems like they're going for the same thing, but they're not. They're not a treasure well. hunt store. Right. That's not what they're known for. They're known for home goods, but you enter and sort of like part drugstore and yeah. then there's some food consumables after they bought cost plus so it's sort of a mishmash and i don't think there's a clear uh identity anymore as to what the company was and if you look back to when they really were doing well uh 2012 they were also benefiting from the fact linens and things went bankrupt right right so they were the sole uh i guess competitor and now you have so you gotta the go get a pillow you go, you're yeah. just now go. you have mass you have amazon i mean 70 yeah. percent of all retail transactions i believe start on amazon right wayfair it's ve- you have to be very quick and have a great selection a good experience if people aren't coming back what and the-, the stores are kind of bananas like i yeah. mean when you go in <laughs> no, i've got like i've gotten stuck where i'm like get me out of the kitchen the couponing has really pressured their margins i cannot even imagine like being with you when all that, that like goes on in bed bath and beyond but it's a little nutty what should they be or what can they be to do well and more than just I think they really have survive. to have the experience 
be something that is unique and different from just buying sheets and towels online. Like you have to have, if you're going to have any kind of service, maybe it should really cater to helping people do that decorate, something that makes it different. So you feel like you have to go in the store and the product is compelling or different enough that it's worth going there. And right now they don't have that. I mean, they don't really have that much private label of any. They just announced a furniture brand uh, that's private label, but there's just nothing unique about it. It really benefited from the time where the category killers were all the rage, and now yeah. there's just too much competition. Right. Do you go to Bed <clears throat> Bath & Beyond? Occasionally. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I mean, like, the boys like to go to sort of discover various things. I think, like, we you know, we have a soda stream, and I think that's yeah. where we buy, like, little canisters oh, for yeah, the soda yeah. stream. So yeah. it's like if there's something very specific right. uh, that we're going to get. I mean, I, I was joking about this, even you'll appreciate this. Like, Bed Bath & Beyond, I associate with the movie Old School, where Will Ferrell <laughs> is like, no, we got a nice little Saturday plan. You know, we got a Home Depot, Bed Bath & Beyond, if we have time. Um, yes. But, I mean, it is, you know, there is a certain element of that. It's a very suburban thing. You know, you're a hipster living no, in No, no, no. I have one that's not far from me. But And I right. agree that if there's something very specific, I'm like, oh, yeah, I but guess I But it's usually related to, to shipping. If people look online, and, and their website also yes. was also very difficult to maneuver up until recently, maybe yeah. even to some point. So, if it, But if you can get something very similar online, I think people will tend to do that. So will giving so – so these activist investors are right. I think that they're they're definitely in a right first step, and I think the things that they've proposed in terms of getting a CEO who's very focused on a strategy, working to cut the costs. Costs have really jumped in the last um, few years as they've worked to invest in technology, and we're still not seeing any benefit from that. So I think those are all great initiatives. They just really have to be able to – they have to make themselves relevant again in today's marketplace. And do you That's- think ultimately the activists may force a sale either to private equity or maybe some other strategic who could come in and make it part of a, a, a bigger It's only a $2.3 billion right. market uh, cap. In theory, yes, I suppose they could to get their exit, but I cannot think of a strategic buyer where it would make sense to buy a company with $12 billion in revenue – and struggling. It's sort of, yeah. you know, but a lot of other retailers have been taken private and then they subsequently get too much debt and they can't handle it. Right. So I would be worried See, that Toys this R would R be. Yeah. That's or pretty Jim remarkable. It's 12 billion. Sorry. Yeah, 12 billion in revenue. revenue. Yes. And the, and the market. It's one of the largest. Yeah. Uh, home decor companies out there. Yes. All right. I don't know what to. I don't know what to say about Bath, Bath and Beyond. <laughs> no, mean. but it's. I do wonder. But I thought about what you said about maybe you know whether it's like furniture advice or like decorating Something advice because they have different. all the different pieces, yes. right? I feel like Carol is sitting here contemplating: Can I buy Bed Bath and Beyond? Because I know <laughs> no, how to turn it around. No, I get lost. You <laughs> know, it's first it's shampoo, nail polish, and yeah, then it's, it's off to sheets. Come on, you could be the savior of New Jersey. All right, Seema Shah, <laughs> thank you, senior consumer analyst Great for Bloomberg stuff. Intelligence. Her research on Bed Bath & Beyond, it's great. It's great. You pick it up on the terminal. She knows all things retail. Stock is up 20%, but it, it does have a pretty high short position. I know Seema said walking in that there might be a little bit of a short squeeze going on, too. So uh, that could explain some of the bump up in today's trade. Ah, yes, the sea. We love the sea, but uh, because of it and because of climate change, more and more coastal homes are at risk. And yet, that may not be reflected in insurance uh, costs. James Tarmy is writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. He wrote the story. It's one that is featured in our upcoming issue of the magazine. It's out later this week. Jill Weber with us, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The story, too, can be found on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. James Tarmy, he's shaking his head. What's going on? 
Not at all. <laughs> there was a little. There was a little shake. <laughs> what did I say? What did I say? Not at all. All right, all. tell us about this story. Well, it starts with a pretty simple premise, which is that uh, extreme climate events on the coasts are increasing in frequency and severity, um, but the actual carrying cost of homeownership on the coasts is pretty stable. And so the question is why. The answer. Yeah, go ahead and answer that for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> as long as you pose the question. Well, the, the an- answer, James Charlie, <laughs> is the answer comes in two parts. On one level, it's a federal issue, and there's basically very little political will to raise premiums from the national flood insurance uh, program, and so you basically have corn farmers subsidizing people in the Hamptons' flood insurance. On a private level, this is actually much more interesting, and it's a very complicated answer. Um, It has to do with, uh, one, the fact that it's a pretty soft market right now, and so there's very little incentive to raise premiums because uh, whoever raises their premiums will be undercut. And two, it really has to do with the reinsurance industry because there's a tremendous amount of capital in the reinsurance markets that's basically there artificially deflating the cost of uh, flood insurance and and private uh, disaster insurance. So why should we care? Well, this has tremendous implications for the long-term viability of um, home prices and up and down the east and west coast. Um, And the other issue is that more and more Americans are moving to the coasts. So this is an increasingly... Um, important question of our time, I think. So they're moving to the coast where homes, home prices are, are depending on where, sometimes it's, go, it's gone way up and other times it's gone down. And yet insurance has basically stayed the same. Right. And you would imagine that the people who have the most to lose, namely insurance companies, would be the most aggressive about recalibrating the risk involved and the prices associated with that risk. Right. If you're a bad driver, your premiums go up, right, for car insurance. But that's not happening if you live in a home that you know has already either been devastated because of flooding or it's on the coastline. And we know with climate change that you're more likely to have some problems. Right. And going back to these larger issues, if all of a sudden insurance companies catch up and the federal government catches up, um, All a lot of people are going to be in a lot of trouble because they're going to be living in these places where they can't get their money out of it and they're not going to be able to move in the event of an actual storm damage. Because the, um, the values of the property will diminish so yes, dramatically? completely. You know, the thing is that the property values are predicated upon people actually being able to move there and know that they can leave, right? And afford insurance. Exactly. Um, no one is going to move to a place where um, insurance companies are telling them that they are completely on their own. It's just not something that people So do. you're telling me like property in the Hamptons that's right on the beach that's more inclined to maybe have some problems because of climate change people won't buy? Well, I think yeah. what he's saying is it's built on sand. <laughs> it's, it's built on sand. Because so, someone who I pay flood insurance in an area because it's considered a flood zone, but I really don't ever have flooding. Right. And, I, and I, it's frustrating. So the Hamptons are one example. Another example is Louisiana. Um, so people in the Hamptons right. will always really be able to uh, – right. most of the people in the Hamptons will be able to afford premiums going up 
even five or ten times what they are right now. Um, the real issue is these vast amounts of people who are in uh, lower class communities right. who are along the coastline that this is ultimately looking like it's going to become a federal issue. Well, Joel, I think about the story that was in the magazine about the communities, right, that were buying up homes that they knew were in flooded areas or, or, or you know, and they were giving them fair market prices because they figured in the long term it's more expensive to have to rescue these people and so on and so forth and to be kind of fair and just and then not let anybody build there. That's right. I mean, slightly different issue, right? Because yeah, I think I think the, the heart of what, what Mr. Tarmy's kind of hit on here, though, is the the nature of insurance, right? Mm-hmm. So what is what do we hear about from within the insurance community about what this means? Well, the thing is, and the really crazy thing that happened when I reported this piece out is that everyone was in agreement. Everyone agreed yeah. that premiums were too low, and everyone agreed that it was going to change. And the real kind of crux of the matter is that it won't change until a lot of terrible things happen. Right, <laughs> right. which the way things are going in terms of climate change. And on that change. happy note, James Starmie. <laughs> happy Tuesday. <laughs> Writer for Bloomberg Business Week, Joel Weber, editor, of course, of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us every day with a new highlight from the magazine. This one, a little dark. <laughs> a, little a little dark. dark. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for your drive to the close. We're joined by Matt Peden. He is Chief Investment Officer down at Guidestone Capital Management down in Dallas, Texas, the Big D. That's where he joins us on the phone. So, Matt, taking a look at the trade today, today a little more green. Carol and I have been discussing the fact that it feels a little different from what uh, we've seen at least over the last 10 days. So what's going on out there? What's on people's minds? Yeah, I think uh, what you've actually seen, we've had a couple days where treasuries have rallied, and I think the market's kind of taken a more cautious tone, one more of a risk off, and I think it's just an opportunity for people to to buy back in at at some uh, more attractive valuations. But I think long term, uh, we continue to be uh, cautious uh, regarding the direction of the equity markets going forward. I love our Markets Live blog, and Dave Wilson, I think, might have mentioned this earlier, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, but uh, noting that instead of fretting about the inverted yield curve, equity investors should look at the Fed model, which is flashing a buy signal. Thanks to lower Treasury yields, the relative attractiveness of stocks has improved. The S&P 500's current earnings ratio, or return, excuse me, is about 3% higher than the yield on 10-year Treasuries, which is at an almost, or that's at an almost three-month high. So you know, there's at some point, and Jason, we've talked about this in the magazine. You look at the comparison between your yield on stocks versus the yield uh, on treasuries, and that will certainly, you know, impact your investment decision. Is that impacting your investment decision, Matt? Uh, not, not, not at this point in time. I think what we we have done here is we've kind of backed up. Uh, and, and look, uh, there's been a lot of sentiment uh, driving the market, and a lot of that's been centered around uh, the Federal Reserve. If you go back 
in the third quarter. Uh, we, you know, a lot of negativity is the Fed going to hike above uh, the neutral rate, and then you know we've seen the exact reversal here uh, in the, in the first quarter. And as a result of that sentiment, we've seen wide changes as far as the expectation of what the Fed is going to do, and I think that's driven a lot of the behavior that we've seen in the equity markets. But uh, given the sentiment shifts, what we've done is we've backed up, look at fundamentals, where we are in the economic cycle. Uh, we see global growth slowing. Uh, that, in turn, has been a slower uh, earnings growth. While it's been positive, it has been slowing. And we really don't see any major catalyst out there at this point in time to where we see uh, earnings kind of reversing course uh, and increasing uh, going forward. So, again, what we've done is actually uh, kind of um, – uh, made our portfolios uh, uh, more conservative, uh, more defensive, and uh, hopefully uh, providing more downside protection going forward. And so how do you do that? What sectors do you favor in this kind of market when we are, as it sounds like you're describing, sort of in the late stages of the cycle, uh, which I guess the question is, how late are we and how defensive do you need to get? <laughs> yeah, the million-dollar question is, how long, how long is this cycle going to last and where are we? Uh, forever, apparently. Yeah, we, apparently forever. <laughs> forever, man. apparently. Exactly, exactly. And you know, that's, that's a great point, and I think one thing that we talk about here uh, on a continual basis is what catalysts are actually left uh, to, to allow the, the, this uh, cycle to continue. Uh, monetary uh, policy is, um, you know, uh, near its end. Uh, we have a little bit of room here uh, in, in the United States, or in America's here, but uh, globally, central or monetary policy is limited, fiscal policy is limited. And so uh, it's going to have to be some more non-traditional methods, we think, to kind of stimulate economies. But you had asked as far as sectors, we like healthcare, uh, consumer staples, a lesser extent, uh, utilities. And, um, and when you look at the equity markets, we really like things that have a beta lower than one. So uh, if you like defensive equities, um, we like that. And then we're also uh, in the fixed income market, increasing credit quality and so forth, but also uh, sprinkling in um, some liquid alternatives to be a surrogate for fixed income, have a volatility profile very similar to fixed income, uh, but take away uh, kind of yield curve and interest rate exposure risk as well. So what do some of those liquid alternatives look like? Help me understand that. Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, Options, strategies, uh, long-short equity, uh, and things like that. We've thrown in some kind of convertible strategies, uh, currency, uh, things like that to where um, you're really trying to uh, get the, uh, the alpha exposure versus beta and rely on manager skill. And these types of strategies have very low correlation uh, to the traditional uh, equity and bond markets. Does it bother you, though? Like, I've heard a couple of people kind of bring up the idea that you know, we're not seeing necessarily strain in the credit markets. So, you know, why aren't we if if things aren't as good as it seems? Sure. Now, that's, that's a great question. Uh, one thing on our list that we're looking at um, is the bond market. Uh, we believe that the bond market really is a, is a good predictor. Um, 
uh, of the markets uh, and spread widening is one thing that we've been monitoring closely. I do think uh, part of the issue that we've been seeing is there's so much liquidity in the market uh, that's keeping uh, you know investors. Um, you know, buying uh, spread product in the bond market, which has kept um, uh, spreads relatively low. I think if you look on a global basis, we're in a very low yield environment. Therefore, uh, people are willing to to purchase uh, corporate bonds and so forth at relatively uh, narrow spreads. We mm-hmm. would question whether or not investors are being paid for the risk taken uh, by by purchasing. Uh, those types of securities. So Matt, biggest single worry for you in the market as we go into the rest of 2019? Yeah, I think several things. One um, is Federal Reserve mistake, Um, you know, or, you know, too easy or or too too restrictive is something that we're we're monitoring. I think uh, global uh, downturn as far as global economic growth, uh, earnings, and then lastly, um, as you said, uh, the bond market, the lack of liquidity there. If we start to see spread widening, um, I think that that'll be a further sign that we're uh, extremely late in the cycle. Matt Peden, you are Chief Investment Officer for Guidestone Capital Management on the phone with us from Dallas. Really appreciate your time. And as he said, you know, more some cautious. risks out there. So, that, I thought that was yeah. interesting, right? Yeah. He's much defensive. more defensive. Yeah. 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 Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.